First of all, just I want to say thank you. Um, thank you to Trent and to Josh uh, for preaching the last couple weeks, and then and Trent uh, inadvertently extended us a third week um, of my of my break uh, with the sickness. But um, I'm so thankful for them and just to be able to sit at their feet and listen to them teach and listen to them take us through God's word. Um, and that it's the same. We can have different people, different times, but we would all submit to God's word, that that's what we're here to listen to, that's what we're here, that the Spirit would take us through God's word and would apply it to our lives, we'd have understanding. So just let me pray um, before I start uh, for God to be with us during this time. Lord, please, Lord, we are nothing without you. Lord, thank you that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves, Lord. Lord, that you've sent your Son to pursue us, to go to the cross in our place, Father, to make a way for us to know you. Lord, that through him we can be your sons and daughters. We can know you. Lord, we can have a hope for eternity. Lord, just amaze us with that this morning as we look at your word, your story, Father, your redemptive story how you've been redeeming since history began, Father. Lord, I pray that we would come before your word and that we would just be able, as Ernesto said, to sit before it, Lord, that we would truly, this morning, be hearers of your word, Father, that we would uh, just let go of our, of, our, our pre, of our preconceived notions that we have, Lord, of what you say and how you instruct us, Lord, and that we would just sit before it. We'd sit before your inspired word, that you gave Nehemiah and that we would listen. Lord, help us to understand it. And Lord, help us to get to the place where it changes our hearts, Father, that your spirit would do that in us. Lord, we'd be able to apply it to our lives and proclaim it to others. Thank you for this body. Thank you for this time that you've given us. Lord, may this morning be completely about you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter 4. A brief review. I had to review it a little bit more than normal because I didn't prepare through it, didn't teach through it. But as I look back and even listening to Josh and Trent and what they shared and studying that passage, I really saw that there was this external opposition to the work that was being done, right? There was Tobiah and Sambalat, uh, who else? Geshem, that were coming and that were uh, proposing these threats that were jeering at the Jews as they were working and building the wall. And from that external opposition, there were two things that kind of came through, two positive outcomes. One was that it increased the Jews' unity, brought them together. The second was that it increased their commitment to the work. Okay, those are the two things that happened as a result of this opposition. And as I was reading back through chapter 4, I was a little jealous because, like, if there's a Braveheart passage and a Braveheart story... Right, Braveheart is a movie, Mel Gibson. You guys haven't seen it. It's violent, it's rough, but it's an amazing story, right? It fires me up. And as I read this, I'm like, this is like Braveheart. They had a common enemy, right? Edward the Longshanks is king of England. The, 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 the Scottish clans were all divided. They were all on their own. And this ruthless king, Edward the Longshanks, was over them. That's what brought them together. That's what unified them. And I thought about this, this, this out this external opposition that they had, it brought the Jews together. And it was like William Wallace, when he comes before the nobles and he says, unite us, unite the clans, let's come together and let's face this 
external enemy. Let's face our enemy together. And then he brings them together. And then the passage that I want to repeat, just because I want to be able to say it too. That Josh stood here and said. Chapter 4, verse 14. They unite, they come together against this common enemy. Then they need to face this enemy. Then they need to continue on. They need to be about this work. And he says, I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He inspired them. They've been inspired to work. He inspires them to continue despite this opposition. And then as they come together, as they're unified against this opposition, it increases their commitment to the wall. Because of this threat, a literal threat to their lives, they commit more to the work on the wall. They commit more to what they're doing. If you look at the end of chapter 4, it says, So we labor at the work. Verse 21, And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. From when the sun came up to when the sun went down, they were working on the wall. Verse 22, he says, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. Now it's just not from sun up to sundown. It's gone to a 24-hour operation. The intensity has raised. In verse 23, he says, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They didn't take their clothes off. It was an extreme commitment that it intensified the work that they were doing. It became nonstop. And it's an amazing picture of everyone participating. Everyone was a part of this work of building up God's name so that his name could be known. The perfumers, the goldsmiths, the nobles, the rulers. Everyone is sacrificially serving. Everyone is there. It's become a 24-hour operation. Nehemiah had stirred the people to work. The people began to work. This opposition came. They continued on. They pressed on. The opposition intensified, and they just intensified their efforts. And that's what we looked at. That's what we saw in chapter 4. And as Josh said, it looks like the building of this wall is unstoppable. It's unstoppable because we serve an unstoppable God. So after 141 years of being sent out into exile, they returned. And finally, they've returned to God, and they're keeping his commandments. And faithfully, he's gathered them in that place. The wall is being built up, and he's making his name dwell there. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's awesome. What could possibly happen now to slow this momentum? What could possibly happen to hinder what they're doing? It looks unstoppable. It looks like it, it, it's just going to continue. It's going to be done so quickly. Unfortunately, the situation that Nehemiah describes in chapter 5 and what we're going to study today actually brings this spirit-stirred, unified, sacrificial work of building the wall and God establishing his name to an unexpected and to a screeching halt. They had all this outside opposition. They kept going. The outside opposition got increased. They intensified their work. But what we're going to look at today is what happens internally amongst the people, and the work comes to a stop. Nehemiah stops it all. So let's read chapter 5, verse 1 through 9, now that you're all discouraged. We'll be encouraged by the end, I promise. I'll read first in English and then Grace in Spanish. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
through verse 9. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Verse 5, Now our flesh is as flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent, and they could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts? of the nations, our enemies. A little caveat. Today, as we sit here before God's word, my hope is that we would have understanding and that we would sit here and and, and we would have explanation today. We'd sit before God's word and we'd really understand this and take this to heart. If I could, if you guys wouldn't fall asleep, I'd turn off the lights like that. I want us just to focus on God's word. I want us just to sit before it. I just want us to understand this and see what Nehemiah is telling us, because it's not something that we're used to hearing. It's not something that we're used to studying as the church. It's just something we, we, we don't go to often. In chapter 5, it'll be in two parts. Today, we're going to do that. We're going to focus. We're going to consider. As Mark says, is my favorite word is to consider. Let's consider. Let's consider. Let's think through this. Let's see what God is saying. And then next week, we'll get to the application. Next week, we'll get to how does Nehemiah actually respond and how do the people respond? What do they do as a result of this? But we need to understand the situation. Because the internal disunity, it was very real and it was very significant. It was limiting God's name from dwelling there amongst them. And I believe that this same obstacle, this same situation amongst us, amongst the church, amongst living stones, It would prevent us, it would hinder us from our mission. It would hinder us from proclaiming and demonstrating the supremacy and the worth of Jesus Christ. If this same situation exists amongst us, we will not be able to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel in an accurate way. We need to address it. We need to think through it. And so that's what I want to do is just walk through this passage verse by verse so we'd have a better understanding. And then I'll explain the gospel implications for that, how this relates to us right now as the church. If you look at verse 1, it says, There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. The first thing, there was this great outcry. When you see that in scriptures, it is a situation where people are afflicted. It is a serious situation. And it typically is the poor, and they're typically crying out to God, so God's ear would actually hear them, and God would respond. That's what we see it repeatedly in the scriptures. It's a serious situation, and it's significant here that the people and their wives, that's what Nehemiah records, and their wives were against their Jewish brothers. 
It's not just the people crying out against their Jewish brothers, it's their wives. In that culture, the wives would not typically be crying out. It had to be a big deal, it had to be significant for the wives to come together, for the wives to cry out in this way. And I want to be very clear, what they're crying out, this, it's not murmuring, it's not complaining. It's a serious situation. Their lives are at risk, they're afflicted, and so they're crying out. In my life at home, as far as I know, Nita doesn't really complain about me to other people. Right? She's got a lot to complain about. I've been saying, living with me, she has a lot to complain about. All right? There's a lot of opportunity if she wanted to. But sometimes that there are serious, in our marriage, there have been serious issues or serious things that come to a point. It's like there has got to be intervention from the outside. Somebody has got to do something, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our family, whether it's for me personally, and she will cry out. Against my wishes, she'll cry out, and she'll text Emmanuel and say, you got to come over. She'll text Trent. She'll text Matt Moore. you got to come over. you got to talk to Britt. We've got to deal with this now because this is a serious situation that we've got to take care of. Okay, it's not an everyday thing. It's not a complaining. It's not murmuring. It's a serious situation. And so the people and their wives, are they're crying out. And it says they were crying out against. The situation had resulted in division. It had resulted in disunity. They were crying out against their own people, their own family. They were crying out against the Jews. They were against them. They were united against this common enemy. They come together. And they start to work. And it's what happens a lot. We can be unified as long as we don't interact that much. But we start to come together and we start to work together and we start to do things together. And we start to get frustrated with each other, right? There becomes division amongst us. And that's what happened. They're working on this wall. They're all together. They all have a common enemy. But then this disunity comes up amongst them. And these differences that they had in the text, as we get to it, it will show that they led to a socioeconomic disunity. It was economic. It was about their status. It was about their wealth. It was about their security. And from that came this oppression and mistreatment of each other. That's the situation in chapter 5. It's economic disunity. It's economic division about their classes. That's what actually brings this spirit-stirred, unified, sacrificial work of building the wall and proclaiming God's name to a screeching halt is this economic disunity and division amongst them. And like I said before, in the church today, if this situation, if this obstacle, if this sin, if it's ignored, it will serve as a great obstacle for us to make Jesus Christ known. The big idea from this, as we go through this passage, is that this class or economic disunity amongst God's people it damages the vulnerable, it delays the work, and it discredits God's name. We're going to see those three things as we go through this. It delays or it damages the vulnerable, it delays God's work, and it discredits God's name. They're crying out against each other. And the situation that they describe starts in verse 2. There's three situations or three reports that they give about the situation that they're crying out about. In verse 2 it says, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. With everyone working on the wall, with everyone facing the wall, with everyone 
coming into the city, staying at the wall, working on the wall from day to night, staying there overnight. The normal activity of the people, the normal activity of Jerusalem, which was agricultural, okay, it had come to a halt. They were not working the fields. They were not producing the crops as they had typically would have. They had all focused on building this wall, building this wall, building this wall. But the fields weren't functioning. They weren't being worked. And we have to understand, in our context, removed from this by thousands of years, their welfare of the people was tied to the land. As the land went, so the people went. It was a form of provision, it was a form of wealth, and it was a form of security. And the poor, who didn't own land, they depended on working that land day in and day out. And their provision came on a daily basis from the land, from those that they were working with. They needed to work to be fed. They needed to work each day to meet their needs for the next day. They didn't have security. They didn't have wealth built up because they didn't own this land. And I thought about myself a lot through this. If I'm going to preach, I need to work through this and work through this and work through this. I don't want to say anything to you guys that I haven't worked through. And I'm thinking about my own situation. And, and while we were on break, we went to an amazing restaurant, King's Fish House, had an amazing lunch, incredible seafood. But the reason it was great is because, of course, Ernesto was there serving us. But even thinking about that job for Ernesto, that job for Ernesto is a blessing. That is something that we prayed for. It is an incredible opportunity that provides for his family, that provides as he goes to school, as he cares for those closest to him and those in the body. But even as I thought about myself and Ernesto, I have a job at a hospital. I have paid time off. I have vacation that I can actually take a break from my work and I can go to do something else. And for a certain period during the year, I'll still get paid. I've got four weeks. I can not be working and I still get paid. I still have provision. If Ernesto doesn't work, Ernesto doesn't get paid. He doesn't have paid time off in his job. It provides for him. It meets his needs, but he doesn't have that benefit. He doesn't have that safety net. And it'd be like me going to Ernesto and say, I want you to come with me. We're going to go focus on this thing for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it means. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's God's work. God's going to be at work there. God is doing amazing things. And come on with me. Come on with me. And I ignore the fact that he needs to be working because he can't meet his needs if he's not working while all the time, I've got my vacation, my check still comes. And that's the situation that those with and those without here in Jerusalem, the poor, they needed to work the fields. They needed to be about that. They needed daily sustenance, daily provision. And the rulers, the governors, they didn't necessarily need that. They had security. They had a safety net. And so the poor here, the people and the wives, they were just asking for a distribution of food. They said, we need this food. It is a critical need. We need it. It says that they may eat it and keep alive. It was not for extra. It was for basic things. We need this to keep alive. The second situation, verse 3, it says, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So on top of everything else, on top of everyone working every day, all day long on the wall, there was a famine in the land. And the people had given up their rights to the fields. Any rights that they did have, any ownership that they did have, it says that they were mortgaging it. They were giving over their rights to have this provision that they needed, that the fields weren't providing, because everyone was working on the wall. 
without a means for immediate income. We lose our job. We have no way to make money. We can't pay the bills. We can't buy food. What would we do? We might pull out the credit card. I've got no other choice. I've got no other way to make money. I've got to get credit. I've got to find a way that I can meet these needs and provide for my family, provide for these basic needs. And in many ways, this is what they're doing. Like they've sold their fields. But we all know, and they have happened with them, if we were to do that over and over, that might last for two weeks, three weeks, but then the credit card bill comes due. And then the amount starts to to get bigger and bigger and the interest starts to add, be added to it and becomes insurmountable and we get in a deeper hole than when we first started. They were mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, their houses. But in that, they gave away any opportunity to provide for themselves in the future. But I want to make clear, as it says here in the passage, there was really no other choice. They could do that or they could die. They could do that or they could not have food. It was not a sinful choice. It was not an irresponsible choice. It was a choice for survival. They didn't have food. This is a way to keep my family alive. I'm going to mortgage my fields. I'm going to mortgage my opportunity. I'm going to let this go. The last situation in verse 4, it says, And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So the fields weren't being utilized. They weren't producing. There was a famine. There wasn't enough grain. They had mortgaged their fields. They had given away the rights for their fields. And then they still had to come up with this additional money to pay the Persian king who lived hundreds of miles away. They had to pay the tax to him. So they're not producing. They're not meeting their immediate needs. And yet i got to find more money to pay the king for this tax on this field that's doing me no good. This is a dire situation. And I want us, as we look at this, to understand these economic difficulties, what they were facing. When we experience those economic difficulties, they impact us differently. They impact the poor versus the wealthy very differently. The same situation, the same economic difficulty can have a very different outcome and a very different impact based on our standing, based on our security. The poor can experience a mild, in, a mild economic setback, and it can leave them in critical situations. The rich can experience that same thing, and I'll just wait. I've got other resources. I've got other security. I can, I can wade through that. I can, I can uh, weather the storm. I'll make it up later. I'll catch back. Catch back up. But with the poor, and what I've noticed in, with my neighbors in this neighborhood, in the working class poor, my neighbors work harder than I do. Okay? My, my neighbors make more difficult decisions, are more disciplined than I am as to how they spend as to what they do. Honestly, that's the truth. The man is working two jobs. The woman is working a job. They've got a full, a big family. And as long as everything goes right, as long as everything goes according to plan, they can make all the payments, all the bills are met. But one thing happens, the car breaks down, I can't go to work for the next week because the car breaks down and I didn't have the money to be able to pay to fix the car. Then I got time on my job and I missed that income and now I'm behind on my rent. And now I'm behind on my rent, then I'm going to get a late fee on my rent. And then they're going to charge me more next time. And it just goes and it goes and it goes. And that same little situation of my car breaking down, for me, hey, 
I'll take care of it. I'll pay that money. Or I'll put it on my credit card. I'll come back and take care of it later. But if I have no safety net, that's going to be critical to my situation. Understanding those situations, what did they do? Verse 5 is how they responded, how the, the, the people and the wives were responding. In verse 5 it says, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children as, are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have, have our fields and our vineyards. With no other choices, they begin to sell their sons and their daughters so that they can survive. It sounds awful. It is awful. But in that time, it was something that was culturally acceptable. They would indebt their sons, indebt their daughters in this servitude where they would have to serve someone else so that they would take care of them. It was this voluntary slavery, in a sense, so that they could have their basic needs met. It says that they were having to do that, and some had already occurred. And this tragedy was occurring to the Jews, to the people of God. They were enslaving themselves to other nations, and even to, as we'll find out later, to their own people. And again, what was the division? What was the division about? What was the disunity from that led to this terrible situation, this affliction of these Jews amongst other Jews as they were focused on God's work and the rebuilding of the wall? It was the economics. It was issues with class. That's what resulted in this situation where the Jews are selling their sons and daughters. They were in dire need of food. They were mortgaging their fields. They were borrowing money to pay the king's taxes. They were enslaving their sons and daughters amongst their fellow Jews. This is an internal issue. It's not external. The division was not about doctrine. The division was not about theology. The division was not about their practice of ministry. The division was not cultural. It was not ethnic. They were all Jews. They were all the same people, the same family, of the same nation. It was not about language differences. The outcry against the, from the people against their brothers was about economics. The division, the disunity was internal, and it was between those with it, those with, and those without. It was between those of different classes, between the poor and the rich Jews. And you're probably thinking, so what? That's thousands of years ago. In the church, we can easily dismiss the division between those with and those without. I mean, really, you might be asking yourself, well, does the church need to be multi-class? We say that every week. Does it really need to be? What does that have to do with the gospel? And yeah, there's disunity in the church. We can see that. We can see the division between the classes in the church, between those with and those without, between the rich and the poor. But is that really a big deal? As we seek to proclaim the supremacy and the worth of Jesus Christ. Is that something we should be concerned about? We might see it as an add-on or a special interest, but Nehemiah sees it as a critical issue. He responds immediately and drastically, and as we'll see in verse 6, 
It's so critical that he stopped the work to address it. They had all this opposition. He came to Jerusalem to inspire the people to build the wall, to take care of these people. And now he stops it. He hasn't stopped it for anything else, for any reason. They were working 24 hours a day with guards, with swords in one hand, with a trowel building the wall in the other. But now because of this issue, he stopped the work. It's a serious issue. In verse 6, it says, I was angry when I heard their outcry <coughs> and these words. Nehemiah was angry for a good reason. He was angry for a godly reason. He was witnessing a situation amongst, God, amongst God's people that didn't reflect God's character and didn't reflect his commandments. His anger is about this injustice and about this oppression of God's people against each other. You think, well, is it okay to be angry? The Bible doesn't tell us not to be angry. It tells us not, and while we're angry, don't sin. Right? We can be angry about godly things. Jesus came into the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Much for very similar reasons. He says, my father's house, you've made it a den of robbers. You're taking advantage. You're taking financial advantage of the people using my father's house to get more for yourselves as you charge them, as you exchange their money, as you charge them for the sacrifices. Jesus was angry. He overturned the tables. Nehemiah is angry here because he sees you guys are not reflecting God's heart. You're not reflecting his commands. What was happening was a disgrace to God. They were rebuilding the wall, but in the process, they were damaging and destroying his people specifically the vulnerable that were amongst them. The people that Nehemiah came back, the people that God had stirred his heart for, that were in a great trouble and great shame, he's come back, they're building the wall, and some people are in a greater shame and in greater trouble because of how they're being treated. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. First of all, this is an amazing way to deal with anger, godly anger, godly. What does Nehemiah do? He takes counsel with himself. He stops. He considers the situation. I can't imagine that he didn't pray. That he's like, God, help me understand this situation. Help me how best how to know how best to respond. This angers me, what I see. It doesn't align with your character. It doesn't align with what you've commanded. Help me understand how to, how to proceed. Help me understand how I've been a part of this. And then he confronts. Confrontation was required. He sees this truth of God that's being broken, and he confronts his brothers and sisters. He goes directly to those who are damaging and oppressing the poor, and he clearly communicates their offense. And I would say that he clearly communicates it biblically, according to God's word. He says, you're exacting interest each from his brother. If you were a Jew, you know the Old Testament. If you were a Jew, you know the Pentateuch, the first five books. In Leviticus, is the law. I want you guys to listen to this. Chapter 25, verse 35 through 37. Because we don't think interest is a big deal. A lot of us have paid interest. A lot of us have dealt with that. Maybe we've charged interest to someone else. But look at Leviticus 25. 
This was the law that they were under. It says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, notice with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, the same word for an immigrant, and he shall live with you. So move over, make space. 36, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. He confronts him with God's word. He's like, you guys know this, I know this, here's God's word. Nehemiah didn't need to convince him, he didn't need to confront him himself. He says, here's God's word, let God's word confront you, let God's word convict you. You know what God has said, and we're not acting accordingly. So after counseling himself, after confronting them directly, and then communicating their sin biblically, he officially stops the work. And he calls a meeting. He brings them all together. He brings together this great assembly assembly that's against them. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, And I held a great assembly against them. He stops the work because of this issue of economic division and disunity and oppression amongst himself. It takes priority over the building of the wall. He says, this has got to be addressed before we move forward. We can't build this wall until this has been dealt with. We can't build this wall at the cost of our brothers and sisters. And I really think this idea of stopping the work, of bringing them aside, gathering this assembly, he wants to take away all the distractions. He's like, I want you to focus on this. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I need you to, as, even as Ernesto said, turn down the lights and hear God's word. Hear what I'm saying to you. And I don't think that he was just satisfied. Well, yeah, that's God's word. Yeah, that's biblical. Yes, we shouldn't do that. He wanted actually for their hearts to respond. He wanted them to be broken inside because they could try for obedience, but if he didn't break their hearts, if the Spirit of God didn't change their hearts, their obedience wouldn't be of much benefit. He wanted them to change their thinking and think like God. As we go on in verse 8, it says, We, as far as we are able, Nehemiah talking about himself, he says, We've bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Nehemiah is saying, I came back here to restore these people. I came back here that God might take them out of this shame and might take them out of this trouble. He's like, but you're putting them right back in it. They had been sold. They had been forced to serve the pagan nations. Nehemiah was seeking to bring them back, was seeking to establish God's people. They were breaking his command. And he's like, what's more important is you're breaking God's heart. God's heart is for redemption. God's heart is to redeem his people. He says, God brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery, and gave us freedom. He brought us into this promised land. And then when we were sent into exile, he's what? He's just brought us back. He brought us back. He's redeemed us and brought us back to Jerusalem. He's establishing us as a people. And what you're doing is put us right back in that slavery. You're doing that to your brothers and sisters. What God has done, in a sense, you're undoing. It's completely contrary to God. And what do they say? They don't say anything. 
says they were silent and could not find a word to say. When I convince Oran's heart, it's quiet. He doesn't have a word to say. When his heart hasn't been changed, when he has an issue, he's, he's justifying himself. He's, no, 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 Papa, you understand this. Understand that. Well, let me tell you about this. Well, so-and-so did that. When he truly believes that he's done wrong, when he's been disobedient, when he's been disrespectful, he's silent. That's for my son. That's for me. That's for you guys. We're all the same way. When you know, when you know and you're convinced in your heart that you have offended someone, you have offended God, you shut up. I don't have anything else to say. I have no way to justify myself. And that's where these people were left. That's where these rulers and these nobles were left. They had nothing to say. And that was the result of a godly confrontation. It's a quiet conviction. So economic disunity in the church must be addressed and confronted. But if it's not actually eliminated or dealt with amongst God's people, it will always damage the vulnerable. It will always delay God's work. And then the last thing, it will ultimately discredit God's name. Look at verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunt of the nation? Nations are enemies. Nehemiah is clearly communicating that the existence of this disunity and this oppression amongst God's people, it disgraces his name. They were taunting God's name because of what was happening amongst them. They were making fun of the other nations of God's name. Look at your people. Look at how you treat your own people. Look at how you care for the people of God. There are those amongst you that you're mistreating and you're oppressing. They're going without food. They're mortgaging their fields. You can't even take care of your own. Who is this God that you serve? It brought a reproach to his name. And my whole point for going through that, it's not comfortable. I didn't necessarily want to teach on it. I'd like to skip chapter 6. But it's part of God's word. It's part of the experience of the Jews. God Spirit has inspired it to be here and we need to consider it. And what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for the church? Because if we allow that to exist amongst us, if we oppress our brother and sister, if we don't consider the needs of each other, it will bring criticism to the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. They will look at us, the church, the people who have been saved, who are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, look at how they don't care for each other. Look at how they disregard each other. Look at how they oppress each other. It will discredit Jesus Christ. It will discredit the gospel. And you, again, might be saying, this unity is an issue, but really, Britt, you might be saying, I believe this unity in the church, amongst the classes, those with, those without, it's an issue, Britt. But, but really, we're going we're gonna to focus on this. We're going to take an entire Sunday morning to go through this passage, and, and you're going to slow down and teach this. When I, when I review other folks, when they do this, they kind of skim through chapter 5. They don't really talk much about it in the majority church. And let's just, let's just move forward. Let's see what happens in chapter 6. 
But it's here. We have to consider it. We have to look at it. And I think it does. It is a gospel issue. If this exists amongst us, it's completely contrary to the gospel. And let me explain to you why. Right? This is what I want you to go away thinking about. Because what I see here are the reason that this oppression, the reason that this treatment of each other, this disunity occurred was because of two things. And it's two things that we still deal with. It's two things that are still in the church, that are still amongst us. The first is self-preservation. And the second is self-sufficiency. All right? Self-preservation. To ensure my own welfare. To ensure my own security. To make myself the priority. That's self-preservation. Self-preservation puts you first. And then you can figure out the order after God, people, others, however you want. But I'm first. I'm first. My family may be right here. We're first. After that, everyone else, even God, possibly is a distant second and third. Self-preservation takes advantage of God, and it takes advantage of others. And we know, we know as believers, we know as the church that this is contrary to the teaching of Christ. When he came and they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The two can't be separated. All of the prophets hang on that. Jesus didn't say anything about loving ourselves. He says, love God, love your neighbor. Self-preservation is loving me. When I'm done with that, I'll love God and I'll love my neighbor. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us rather that we are, and you guys look at the screen, Philippians 2. Instead of preserving ourselves, instead of looking out for our own welfare, instead of ensuring our own security, look at verse 3. It says, we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're his, if you're his son, if you're his daughter, this is to be our mind. We're, that This is our mind in Christ Jesus. And then it shares his example, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus, he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was complete opposite of self-preserving. He gave himself for us so that we could know the Father. He gave everything. He came down from heaven and came to earth. He went to the cross so that we could know him. 
There's no self-preservation in that. He gave himself for us. But if we continue in self-preservation, I think the reason of that is the second piece, because we believe in self-sufficiency. And this is a hard one for us. We believe our provision's up to us, and we can get, we can meet our own needs. It's up to me to care for myself. I can do it if I try harder. I don't need God. I don't need others. I'm sufficient in myself. In Nehemiah, in this case, they had forgotten. They had forgotten what we've read in the past chapters. They had forgotten where Nehemiah says, it's God that's going to make us prosper. They had forgotten, and they had forgotten that it's this great and awesome God that we serve. He's the one that's going to build this wall. Or that it was God that would fight for them. They began to think, this is about me, and I can do it on my own. I'm sufficient in and of myself. And the gospel is clear that we're not self-sufficient, but rather we're completely insufficient. We have nothing to bring. We rely completely on Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not by our own doing, it's by grace. Something he gave us that we do not deserve, that we did not earn. He did everything for us. Understanding the gospel leads us to rely completely on the provision and the work of Jesus Christ. If we relied on Christ and not our own provision and not our own works, then we wouldn't have this need to preserve ourselves and to take what's ours and to make sure we're secure and to neglect my brother and my sister, to oppress them in that sense. We would do that. They did that because they didn't have faith. They didn't trust God's word. They didn't trust what he had told them. And for us, Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And because of that, we've received what we could not provide for ourselves. And we have what we cannot preserve for ourselves. We didn't provide it. We can't preserve it. Jesus provided it. He preserves it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, not our power, is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If there's ongoing, unaddressed, socioeconomic division between us, we don't get the gospel. We just flat out don't get it. It's not, we're not applying it. It's not, it's not changing our lives. It's not changing our hearts. We're not living out the implication of the gospel. But if we believe God's word, as we've seen here in Nehemiah 5, we'll believe that if that exists, it's going to damage the vulnerable, it's going to delay God's work, and it's going to discredit his name. For us, it will delay the work of proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
it will discredit Jesus' name if that exists amongst us. My heart for us is that we would always not just be hearers of the word, but that we'd be doers also. Today is about hearing. Today is about considering what we've heard, thinking through God's word. That's your application, is to walk through this, to understand it, to go home, to reread this, and say, God, I want to understand your heart. I want to understand your word. God, how are you speaking to me? Marinate on this. Reread this. Pray through this. Ask God to show you this, to give you understanding, to give you explanation of this heart. Next week, we'll see how Nehemiah responds. We'll see how the people respond. We'll consider for ourselves, how do we need to respond? What does this mean for us now? But their issue then is our issue now. It discredits God's name then. It discredits the gospel of Jesus Christ today. We have to be willing to stop. We have to be willing to pull together an assembly and address it. In my heart, is that we go away quiet, just like the nobles. We don't have a defense. We're not going to justify ourselves. We're just going to see what God says, and we're going to respond to it. Let it transform our heart. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, that we don't have to make it up. We don't have to make up who you are. We don't have to create our own understanding of you, Lord. You give us understanding of who you are through your word, by your spirit. Lord, and I pray that you would give us thankful hearts even for, for this passage, Lord, even for this that we read about, that Nehemiah wrote about. Lord, that it is beneficial, that it's good. Lord, I pray that we would hear it. Lord, you've made us your sons and daughters by giving up everything for us, by dying for us, by going to the cross in our place. You've brought us in. Lord, we have an amazing position if we know you of your sons and daughters as members of your family. It's a position of great honor. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just humble ourselves before your word. Lord, that your spirit would move in our hearts. Lord, and you would give us a better understanding of who you are, a better understanding of your character, a better understanding, that, Lord, that you desire to redeem us, Lord, that you have redeemed us through Jesus Christ, through the ultimate slavery of sin. Lord, and you do not desire for your children to be enslaved in any way. God, help that not to be amongst us. Lord, change our hearts. Bring us to a place of willingness to respond in silence, Lord. Thank you so much for who you are, God. Lord, we so don't deserve this. We ask this in Jesus' name.